So, I guess that my coming through there, maybe bring me loud. I guess that you are only dismissed for five minutes. <laughs> so, I want to invite you to find your seats again. This is as loud as it gets. So that, that dismissal was for five minutes. Five-minute passing period between classes. Uh, we do want to keep uh, Mark and Nancy Rodenbeck in our prayers. Uh, Mark's mom uh, either... Friday night or Saturday morning had a major stroke and uh, is she up in Fort Wayne okay yeah but last last we had heard from Mark that uh, she wasn't conscious and there wasn't and not responsive really so they're they're really kind of looking at uh, um, you know whether or not the Lord's just already taken her um, and things and so that it would be uh, a home going for her for sure, but we need to be praying for Mark and Nancy and Mark's sister and, and the rest of the family uh, during this time. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer for that as well as for our time in his word. Lord, we recognize that in knowing Christ as our Savior, this place is not our home. I'm still... Uh, impacted by uh, Tyler's message last week um, telling us that that if if a person does not know Christ as their Savior, this world is as good as it gets. But for those who do know Christ as their Savior, this world is as bad as it gets. Uh, we are grateful uh, for uh, Mark's mom knowing you as her Savior. We're grateful for the fact that we know that this is no surprise to you. This is no uh, event that you were unprepared for uh, or were not a part of, Lord. Uh, and we are grateful for your presence with them. We pray, Lord, for Mark and Nancy, Mark's sister, and the rest of the family that you would give them your wisdom and understanding of the situation and, and the steps that should be taken. Just pray, Lord God, for their relationships through all of this uh, would be seasoned with grace and would be able to look back on this as a time when, when you showed your faithfulness uh, to this situation, Father. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for our time in your word. We thank you, Lord God, for uh, the, our children being able to learn from your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you that this is a timeless word. No matter what the generation gap has been uh, for the last 2,000 years since your word was given to us in completion, you have been able to speak to generation after generation. You have been able to strengthen your church, the body of Christ on this earth as your people. 
you have been able to be our head and direct us. Lord, we, we uh, don't claim to have completely understood everything correctly or put it in the priority that, that you uh, put it in, Lord, but we uh, want to be learning from you constantly. Lord, we welcome you here among us. We pray, Lord God, that you would be our teacher, that you would take this time and that you would make it uh, what you desire. Uh, if anything happens here this morning, Father, we pray that it would further our relationship with you. That is what we want and need more than anything. Lord, I thank you for this time, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you probably know if uh, you've had a conversation with me and Kelly any time in the last few months or so that this year Kelly and I are, are moving into the blessing of the next step of, of family, of grandparenthood. Uh, two of them coming, two grandsons in the same year. Um, and uh, so uh, we, you know, we pray that they will be best buds as well as anything else. Um, just, I can't get this thing to scroll. So I'm going to go down here and grab my paper notes, which is why I use those or print those off. Uh, you know, I was surprised talking to my oldest brother recently. I'm 48. My brother's 53. And we're talking about the fact that both of our daughters are expecting. And, and his response was, he kind of looked at me and says, I don't want to be a grandpa anytime soon. I could not identify with that. Uh, you know, this is like uh, a great thing, family, and expanding family, and, and all the ways that God created family to be. It makes me think of a family reunion that, that a, a uh, young granddaughter was bringing her fiancé to in order to meet her grandma for the first time. And she's kind of looking at him and she says, son, do you want to have children? Do you want a family? And, and he said, uh, yes, I do. She, you know, so you have the desire for children. And he says, yes. And she kind of nodded her head and she looked around at the kids running wild and she said, would you keep that desire under control, please? <laughs> Family can be a, a, uh, a stretching thing. I remember uh, it being said that, you know, for parents, children are their last opportunity to grow up. And they certainly teach us that. And I would expect grandparenthood is similar in a lot of ways. You know, God loves family. God created family. Uh, we see that from, from right off the bat in all of the things that God could have written about over the thousands of years that are covered in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. He makes sure to explain where family came from, how important marriage is, why God created men and women as he did, and, and as he created them to be married as he did. In a way, the institution of family represents the triune God himself. Create, uh, uh, creating family 
in many ways in his image of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a community God. And he created those, the, the one part of his creation, mankind, that is made in his image. He created it to be a family, as he is. God created family, a specific family, for himself. The people of God, a privileged people of God, beginning with a man named Abraham. Abraham, who was not going to be able to have a physical family, God miraculously blessed him to make him into a family. And, if you will, the Old Testament family of God throughout the Old Testament. We've talked quite a bit about that through Hebrews 11. It says we've kind of learned about these Old Testament people as they're referred to as being those who, who had a faith that was an assurance in their heart of what had been hoped for, what they were hoping for. That faith was evidence of what they could not physically see. And we learned, as I mentioned, a little bit about Abraham. And we saw that God promised to make Abraham into a great nation that would carry his name, that would carry the name of God before the people of the earth, and that would also be an object of God's grace. We, we know that this took place around 2090 B.C., almost 2100 years before the birth of Christ. And as a part of God's discussion with Abraham, he tells him that his family eventually is going to go down to the land of Egypt. You can read about this in Genesis 15. And, and I'm just going to read it through quickly here. Don't try to flip there. but uh, Well, you can if you want to. But verses 13 through 14, Abraham is told, The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not, there, that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. It's basically, in, way back in Genesis 15, God is explaining what's going to happen in the book of Exodus. When the children of, the, of Abraham, the Hebrews, eventually the children of Israel are slaves in Egypt. And God continues his promise of making a great nation through Abraham's descendants. He passes on this blessing from Abraham to his son Isaac and from Isaac to his son Jacob. And Jacob actually has his the name given to him of Israel, meaning one who walks with God. And Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And God tells, again, Jacob, he tells him how he will use this time in Egypt to make his people into a great nation. We can read in Genesis 46, God spoke to Israel, remember that's also the name of Jacob, in visions in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation nation i myself will go down with you to egypt and i will also bring you up again and joseph's hand joseph being one of jacob's sons will close your eyes 
So when Jacob goes down to Egypt, he takes his entire family, which is 70 people. Not quite a great nation yet that God promised that he would make Abraham's descendants into. But just as God told Abraham it would take place in Genesis 15, God had them there for 400 years. And shortly after they had gotten there and the Pharaoh that Joseph had known died, we're told in Exodus chapter 1 that a new Pharaoh was born or, or came to power. And we read in Gen Exodus 1, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and are too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And we read from that point that they were made into slaves. Uh, many of the, of the uh, amazing creations of the people of Egypt that we now see as ruins were very likely built by Hebrew slaves, by the children of Israel who were enslaved there in Egypt. So they went down as 70 people. But, the, but God raises up a man named Moses. And when those 400 years were completed, God has a plan to bring his people out. But guess how many by that time are brought out of Egypt? Over 3 million. 3 million that don't have necessarily a culture. God gives them a law. They don't have a land to belong to, but they have a promised land back in Palestine, in the land of Canaan. And so we read, after 400 years of captivity, that God's plan is to use a man named Moses to deliver his people from Egypt. But this work of deliverance was going to come through several different steps of faith that Moses was going to be taking. God was going to lead Moses to take steps of faith. And remember, steps of faith, that we've, as we learned earlier in Hebrews 11, come out of an assurance of what we hope for. They are evidence of what is not, we do not yet see. That's what faith is in Hebrews 11. And so we read about this man, Moses. So we pick up in verse 23 through 27 of chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and that they were not afraid, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, the, Moses was born among the children of Israel there in Egypt. And, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, well, uh, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about what, why is it that his parents are having to hide him. But as we knew already that one pharaoh enslaved them hundreds of years earlier because he was concerned that they were getting too many. Well, hundreds of years later, he, that didn't solve the problem. They were, they were upwards of three million people. And so their pharaoh of that land was had decided that uh, he had some ways that needed to fix that. And that was to eliminate the young baby boys that were born. 
we continue on. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What is, what is going on there? Well, we'll talk about how that took place, but, but um, as a part of hiding Moses, they hid him by floating him in a basket on the Nile, and he was eventually picked up by a daughter of Pharaoh and, and was eventually uh, raised in the house of Pharaoh himself. But we read here in verse 24, he, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It might seem odd this morning, but I want to challenge you to join the rebellion, to join the rebellion. Now, rebellion can be defined as like an organized opposition, like take up your pitchforks and, and things like that. That's not what we're talking about here this morning. But, but in its essence, a rebellion is opposition to the one in authority or dominance, social authority, I would say, cultural dominance. I'm talking about a rebellion against any laws of the land that demand that we ignore the commands of God, against the status quo of chasing privilege and pleasure over God's priorities, a rebellion against fear of reprisal. The rebellion that I'm talking about isn't a matter of taking up arms against people, a physical presence. It's about taking our minds away, rebelling, rebelling in our minds against the spiritual forces that want to conform them. As we're told in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. First of all, take the obedient step of faith and rebel against satanic laws. Moses' parents rebelled against the king's edict. We, we can read in Exodus 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 22, then the king of Egypt, this is Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named, well, I don't know if we need to know their names, but he says to them, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. And if it is a daughter, she shall live. We, it goes on to say, but the midwives feared God. They feared God more than they feared the Pharaoh and his commands. And they didn't obey. And the Lord blessed them because of this in return. Our world, since the beginning of time, since the beginning of sin, has been, it has been the goal of God's enemy to still steal, kill, and destroy, beginning with the most vulnerable beginning with the most vulnerable. 
And we see further because this wasn't working. In verse 22, the Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you, you shall let every daughter live. This was Pharaoh's command. But Moses' parents, as well as many more in the Hebrew nation, saw this as a satanic law that should not be obeyed. They, it says that they, they uh, by faith, when he was born, Moses was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't, were not afraid of the king's edict. Every child is beautiful. Every child is legitimate. Many Hebrew parents and midwives resisted this satanic law, as I said. And the idea here is that, that not just that Moses was beautiful in, in, in a, in a um, way of looking at him, but there's something that stood out about him as well, a signal, if you will, will this child is here to be a deliverer. Moses' parents took the step of preserving his life, and they didn't just preserve his life, they let him go. They released him to God's purposes for his life. As I mentioned, they, they um, set him in a basket. And there's some understanding here of knowing that this was where and when Pharaoh's daughter was going to come to the Nile in order to bathe. And it, and it just so happened that in God's grace... Moses' parents were able to raise him in their own home. But we read in Exodus 2, verse 10, when the child, speaking of Moses, grew old, she being his mom, his mom, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. He was named by Pharaoh's daughter herself. We're told it's because she said, I drew him out of the water. All of this meant obeying God on the part of Moses' parents rather than obeying the king, the command of their earthly ruler. And this is how God made it turn out, that a deliverer was protected, a deliverer was elevated into the house of Pharaoh, a deliverer was prepared. I appreciate something that Warren Wearsby said about this. He said, a home should be the first school of faith for a child. And sometimes that means saying, kids, this is what our government is telling us to do, but this goes against God's law. Think of the family of Corey Ten Boom, at great risk to themselves. We're saying the, the, the German rulers that have taken over our nation are telling us that we must turn in any Jew that is fleeing, but we will not do this. It was a home that taught faith. Christians have stood their ground against rulers that have forbidden marriage. Christians today and in the past have, have stood against China's one-child policy. When you monkey with these things, folks, it doesn't go well. Our world is facing a declined birth rate that many of our cultures are facing the, their demise, their end within a matter of decades and, not, and are likely not going to have enough young people 
to take care of what will be us old people. Healthcare workers, in, in a recent uh, removal of a restriction on the part of our present administration, healthcare workers soon could, could face the loss of their job because of being forced to participate in abortion uh, with the conscience clause being removed from this law. The Gospel of John tells us that Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. This should not be used, this idea of rebelling against satanic laws, let me tell you. It should not be used to justify self-protection. Jesus himself told us, if someone takes your coat, give him your shirt also. It shouldn't be used to justify disobedience or self-protection in the sense of remember that Jesus told us to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to render to God what belongs to God. This isn't, this isn't a justification for saying, well, I don't agree with what they're going to use this money for, so I'm just going to hold on to it. That is not what we're talking about here. Of course, we're called to submit to our governing authorities and to obey the laws that they pass. But if an earthly law calls for disobedience to God, we are to disobey and to accept the consequences. It's also valuable for us as parents to learn from the faith of Moses' parents, releasing them to follow God's will, even if it means letting go of our earthly hopes for them. We tell our kids numerous times, our greatest desire for you is to love and to follow our Lord. And if that means you're a ditch digger, we don't care. Because this is what's most important to us. And this is what we want to be most important to you, to follow Christ. Well, secondly, I want to challenge you. Take the obedient step of faith and rebel against worldly priorities. We read, by faith, Moses, when he had gro was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses rebelled against the worldly priorities of prestige and pleasure. We can read in Exodus 2 that Moses did this, specifically identifying with the Hebrew people as being his people. We read, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Notice, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Stephen gives uh, uh, details to this in Acts 7 as he is uh, proclaiming the gospel just before being stoned. And he says, when he was 40, um, speaking of Moses, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. The contrast of living for God's purpose and the identity he gives is clear. 
Moses made the no-brainer choice to be identified with the eternal blessing of God's people rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin that were available to him in Pharaoh's house. He did the math. And the, and, and the result was, this is a no-brainer. Realizing the greater wealth of being identified with Christ rather than having access to the treasures of Egypt. You see that wording? The wealth of, of, of obeying God than the treasures of Egypt. It takes eyes of faith to obey. Moses made the choice like the Apostle Paul when, when, did when he regarded his prestige before knowing Christ, saying in Philippians 3 verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I'm going to tell you this. The Apostle Paul, just as much as anyone since or before then, wins in the end. Moses chose to live for God's reward as we've been challenged in verse 6 of this chapter. That without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. With all the pleasures of, of Egypt at his fingertips, within reach he lived for the truth of what would be later written. In Psalm 16, verse 11, you make me know the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's pleasures so much further outweigh any earthly pleasures that we might be offered with sin. Think of how the readers would have been reading this. That Moses, the one whom their Jewish brothers and sisters that they had grown up among had revered so much that, that they're being reminded that he chose to leave the culture he was raised in and follow what, what, what we're told here in Hebrews to follow Christ, to follow the coming Messiah, the one that would come through the Hebrew people. These readers were called to consider it a joy and a privilege to suffer for Christ. They were told in Hebrews 10, verse 32 through 33, as you will be reminded of, or you'll remember, we've, we've quoted these a number of times, where they're told, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Like Moses, they had left the family and the home of their youth and identified with followers of Christ, and they paid an earthly price but the eternal reward far outweighed any price that they were paying. I remember uh, recently uh, I was traveling through an airport. And uh, I think it's, I remember it's when uh, me and the boys went down to uh, Florida this past winter. I know, feel sorry for me. Um, but I had a, a, a t-shirt on. 
And uh, on the front of the t-shirt, it says, I would die for Christ. And on the back of the t-shirt, it said, I will live for Christ. It's probably not the best t-shirt to wear walking through security in an airport. They're probably, they're going to look at you a little funny. Uh, I didn't think about that. Uh, you know, like I would, I would die for Christ, you know, in what, you know, a firing airplane or something. But, um, <clears throat> so I'd kind of forgotten I had it on and, and the TSA agent, as, as he was, you know, wanding me, probably because I had the t-shirt on, he said, would you really? And I looked at him, I said, well, I would hope to. I said, but I think the back of the shirt is more difficult. And with that, he read it where it says on the back of it, I will live for Christ. And he says, I would have to agree with you there. That's true. It is more difficult. Living for Christ is a daily constant refusal to value what the world values. Living as God intended is a matter of constantly considering, as Moses did, it more desirable to take up our cross and follow Jesus in his death, denying ourselves and living for Christ. And we will find that God will empower us to do so, as we're promised in Galatians 2.20, that we are crucified with Christ. And therefore, we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. In the life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us. So it's no big deal. We're not, we're not God himself. It's no big deal for us to give ourselves to him. And we find that God will empower us to do so. As our friend, mentor, pastor, Jim Spencer would often be hear, heard saying, cheer up, God is trying to kill you. It's joining in with what God is already about. Have you ever thought about what the root word of priority is? What is the root word of the word priority? Prior. Yes. You make something a priority by putting it first. Deciding, I'm going to do this prior to this. What do you sp spend your time doing prior to less important things? What do you do first? What do you make sure you get put on your schedule prior to other things? What do you make sure and set money aside for prior to other things? These will show you what is your priorities. If your answer, if the answers don't have anything to do with reading God's word, committing to God's effort, giving to God's work, I'm afraid you might be allowing the world to set your priorities. Rebel against this. I really appreciated something I learned from the men's Lenten breakfast. Of one of the speakers was speaking to us on prior, uh, stewardship. And I love this prayer. It's such a freeing prayer. And, it, and it's, it's, it's tied in with allowing God to set our priorities. He said, as, as this prayer of a steward, of someone who's committed to stewardship, is, it, it's 
looks to God and says, God, I have got more things on my list than I will ever accomplish today. Will you please make sure that the things that I accomplish are the ones that are important to you? Will you help me to accomplish what you have for me to do today? And just let the other stuff fall by the wayside. Don't let the world to set your priorities of life rebel against that. Now, something really strange is said here, you know, for, for we're talking, you know, say 1,500 years before Christ. And the writer to the Hebrews describes Moses as he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. I would just kind of explain this in this way. Moses knew that God's people would, would reign through the coming Messiah one day. Now, looking back on that, and, and understand he's not, the term Christ is a title. It, it's, the, it's the Greek term for the idea of the anointed one, which Messiah means. So he was speaking of the fact that in Moses' mind, he understood that the anointed one, the Messiah, is going to come through my people, the Hebrew people. And therefore, he was attaching to his choice here. The, the writer to the Hebrews is attaching to Moses' choice the fact that I want to follow God's plan for bringing his Messiah into this earth, into this world. And we in no different, in no less of a way, and certainly the readers of this letter to the Hebrews, in no less of a way, were making the choice of aligning with Christ. In their choice of stepping away from what was saying, Christ the death of Christ, it meant nothing. We need to keep sacrificing the temple. But the readers of this letter, the followers of Christ, were recognizing, no, Christ's sacrifice was everything. For that reason, I don't need to go to the temple. I need to be a part of his church. In the future day, Moses was looking to would amount to more riches of God's grace than all the royalty of Egypt could offer. He was looking ahead to what was not yet visible because faith is evidence of what is not visible. So thirdly here, take the obedient step of faith and rebel against fleshly fear. We're told by faith, Moses left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. We're told here that out of faith, he didn't fear the, uh, the, the Pharaoh, but instead he left. He left. Moses departed from the whole system of serving and obeying Pharaoh. As Moses' parents weren't afraid of Pharaoh's law, we're told Moses was not afraid of Pharaoh's wrath. Moses left Egypt as an act of faith. He didn't fear Pharaoh as the God 
that he and the whole land of Egypt claimed for him to be. I think most Egyptians that were sucked up into the Egyptian uh, worldview would have had the idea of there's no running from the hand of Pharaoh. He's a god. How do you run from that? But Moses, rather than fearing the person that could be standing right in front of him, he endured seeing the person that he had faith in who was invisible, the God of the whole earth, the God who was going to be with him no matter where he went. He set out on a life of separation with faith as an assurance of things hoped for, an evidence of things unseen. You know, when I was thinking about this, I thought about how, how when, um, when you're going to blow something up, there you go, you know, or when one of my people say, hey, watch this, something's going to blow up. There's a blast zone, right? You, you know, you, you, you're in within one certain degree of it, you know, you could vapor, get vaporized, right? There'd be nothing left of you. Get a little bit further away, and it's going to be, you're going to get some burns, and you're going to have some internal organ damage, right? And you get a little further away, and you could, might lose your hearing. Uh, might get knocked back on your back. Get a little further away, and, you know, depending on the size of this blast zone. And there's many times where a, a discussion with an unbeliever can, can feel like we're diffusing a bomb. And we're afraid of this blast zone that's going to go off, Right? I don't, I'm not sure if I want to get too close to this. I've seen this happen before. I've experienced this happen before. But there are many times when God is calling us to do the work of 2 Corinthians 10.5, destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we can be afraid of somehow it might blow up in our face. The solution is living as Moses lived. Not worrying about the physical person before you whom you can see. But living by faith as if you can see the very God himself. Even though to your physical eyes he is invisible. Later we'll be told that if, as, as if Jesus is visible to us to keep our eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured not just life on this earth, but endured the cross itself. He's to be our example. You know, I appreciated a statement I heard recently about the present culture that we live in. And its sinful condition. We can empathize. With the state of our world. We can empathize with the lostness. Of people in their sin. Without embracing. The sin. We can empathize. With the spiritual blindness. Because that's what we were all born into. Without endorsing. The decisions. That are made. All Christians are sinners who have been saved by grace. The only reason why any of us have any opportunity or hope of being able to stand before God is if 
We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. If we have the very righteousness of God himself. Clothing us. As we stand before him. And that is only given to us. As a gift because Christ took our sin. And paid for it. On his cross. In his death. As Christians, we can, we can feel like we're alone in the crowd, but we are never alone. And faith makes it as if we can see the very invisible God who never leaves or forsakes us. And the forces that we've, we've talked about rebelling against this morning are the devil, the, fle- the world, and our flesh. As we're told over and over again in the New Testament that this is what we battle against. The flesh the world, the sinful world we live in, and the devil, not the people that we, that, that we inhabit it with. We're familiar with, with these, the world, the flesh, and the devil because, like I said, all believers, all of us, used to helplessly walk according to them. And just hitting that home, I want to read from Ephesians 2. And you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, it's one of the awesome turning points in the scriptures but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus And like Moses, we are called to walk by faith with this new allegiance and not by any sort of pride because we didn't do it in any of our own power. We didn't deserve it. We didn't wake ourselves up, make ourselves alive. We didn't arrive at it by the power of our intellect. God did it all. And now he calls us to live by it, by these new allegiances. As I said before in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's bow our heads. Father God, it, it just seems like the, the scales have tipped. It seems like daily, more and more of our media, more and more of our friends, more and more of our culture seems to feel comfortable to crawl out from where the sin has been hiding and proclaim it from the rooftops. And be surprised that we refuse to live by this new morality. 
that is immorality. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to rebel, but not out of a a fight against um, people. Flesh and blood. But a fight against our flesh. A fight against the spiritual forces of darkness as we allow you to fight for us. A fight against the draw of this world that wants us to fall in line and has plenty of earthly reward to give us, but that pales in comparison to the wealth of following Christ. Lord, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.